Welcome, friends, to a history of the King James Bible podcast. To find more episodes and information, just go to our website, www.ahistoryofthekingjamesbiblepodcast.com. Now here is G.K. with the latest episode. Welcome to A History of the King James Bible Podcast. It is February 2017, and this is episode 19, and the title of this episode is The Second Westminster Company, Part B. Now, I strongly recommend you go back and listen to episode 18 if you haven't heard it yet, as episode 18 and 19 basically go together. So if you haven't heard episode 18 yet, please go back and listen to that. Uh, And uh, and I'm not going to go over any extra information that was in episode 18 because I'd like to just dive in here and get on with this one. We'll get started now and I'll come back a little bit later and talk to you uh, about why I haven't had an episode out for some time. I think this is a longer stretch I've had since I've put out an episode. So, So I'd like to talk to you about that for a bit, a bit later on in this episode. But anyway, Let's just get going with episode 19. Our next translator is Roger Fenton. Fenton had some interesting relationships with a couple of people whose names you will have heard of, and also someone who is just as important to his story, whom you may never have heard of. Roger Fenton was educated at Cambridge, where he later became a fellow of Pembroke Hall and a student of Lancelot Andrews. Do you remember good old Lancelot? Number three leading light of the era behind only Bill Shakespeare and Frankie Bacon? Know who I'm talking about? Yes, him. Well, not only was he at one time a student of Lancelot Andrews, but Fenton also followed him into the prebend of St. Pancras at St. Paul's, and he succeeded Lancelot's brother, Roger, as the vicar of Chigwell in Essex. And of course, all three of them worked on the translation together. Lancelot as head honcho of the work and director of the First Westminster Company, and Brother Roger serving on the panel of the First Cambridge Company. Now, it will come as no surprise to you if I tell you that Fenton was a doctor of divinity, or that he held a number of preferments, a vicarage, a preven, etc., etc. But in his case, we can almost certainly know how he came by his preferments. In 1604, he was chaplain to Sir Thomas Egerton, Viscount Brackley, Baron Ellesmere, the Lord Chancellor. That's the bloke's name, for real. Let's just call him Sir Thomas. Now, Sir Thomas was an educated man himself, and he had held a number of positions in both Queen Elizabeth and King James's courts. He came to Queen Bess's notice as a lawyer who had conducted a case against the Crown, of whom she said, In my trough he shall never plead against me again. Wait, wait, wait. Let's try that again. In my troth, he shall never plead against me again. Shortly after, he was made Solicitor General. So I guess this is an example of, if you can't beat them, hire them. To that end, he conducted a number of high-profile cases in his capacity as Solicitor General. One you might recall is the trial of Mary, Queen of Scots. You might know of her son, young James. Anyway, Sir Thomas was super powerful. Among his other positions that he held, he was appointed Attorney General, and he was knighted, made Chamberlain of Chester, 
he became a master of the rolls and Lord Keeper of the Great Seal and a Privy Councillor. In short, he was one of good Queen Bess's most trusted advisers. Now, when James came to the throne, Sir Thomas's trajectory continued upwards, having been made Lord Chancellor. As an aside, he was a strong English churchman. He supported the Union of England and Scotland, and he was known to be both anti-Puritan and, to be honest, not a great friend of the Catholics. Okay, so by now, some of you are saying, so what? Why are we talking so much about this bloke, Sir Thomas? Well, in his role as Chancellor, he was in charge of handing out many of the ecclesiastical preferments, those of which we have spoken about so much in this series. And it is said that Roger Fenton, our translator here, benefited greatly in the preferment department after becoming a chaplain to Sir Thomas. So Fenton becomes Sir Thomas's chaplain, gets heaps and heaps of preferments laid upon him by the good Sir Thomas, who was, was well and truly in with King James and good Queen Bess before him. We went down that wombat hole because I wanted to take the opportunity to demonstrate how one might get some of these ecclesiastical positions back in the good old days of the translation. That's why I wanted to share that with you so you get the idea. Because we've talked about these preferments a little bit. How do you get them? Well, you know, um, all of them got them because that was part of the deal of being a translator because they weren't being paid directly from the crown. So fair's fair. They're all entitled to their preferments. But uh, Fenton, Fenton's story shows you just how it can happen. Okay, so back to a little bit more about Fenton himself. In 1611, the year the King James Version was published, Fenton published his own three-volume work entitled A Treatise on Usury. Apparently, he and Lancelot Andrews and another fellow had the reputation of being the most noted opponents of usury in England. Now, just briefly, usury can be charging excessive interest on loans or charging interest at all. So it can be seen as either if you charge too much interest on a loan, like we know many of these loan sharks do, or in some cases back in the day, uh, it was a sin to charge any interest at all. And we know that that's not going to happen these days where you don't get charged interest because of inflation and all those other things that we all know about every day when we watch the news. But um, interesting to note that in Islam and in medieval Christianity, um, this idea of charging any interest at all was seen as a sin. Uh, and I believe in Islam it still may be seen as a sin. But as you know, my fellow believers, uh, Christianity has given that idea away completely because we all get charged interest and many of us uh, deal with other Christians and are charged interest uh, today. So uh, I think we've moved on from that one. Whether that's right or wrong, that's just the facts. Just to give you a little bit more food for thought, take the time to read the parable of the talents in Matthew 25. Uh, in my humble opinion, there is a lot more to this than a discussion about money, but let's read that now from verse 24 to verse 28. Then he which had received the one talent came and said, Lord, I knew thee that thou art an hard man, reaping where thou hast sown and gathering where thou hast not strawed. And I was afraid and went and hid thy talent in the earth. Lo, there thou hast that is thine. His Lord answered and said unto him, Thou wicked and slothful servant, thou knewest that I reap where I sowed not, and gather where I have not strawed. 
Thou oughtest therefore to have put my money to the exchanges, and then at my coming I should have received mine own with usury. Take therefore the talent from him, and give it unto him which hath ten talents. Now compare this portion of scripture with Jesus throwing the money changers out of the temple. Didn't they charge a little bit of interest for exchanging the Roman coin for the holy half shekel that the worshipper required? Did they charge too much? Did they also charge too much and make a huge profit on selling the doves as well? Let's look at Matthew chapter 21. And Jesus went into the temple of God and cast out all them that sold and bought in the temple and overthrew the tables of the money changers and the seats of them that sold doves and said unto them, It is written, My house shall be called the house of prayer, but ye have made it a den of thieves. So what I'm wondering and this is something for you to think about, does this mean that there's a place for charging interest, but not within the spiritual um, slash religious context? Is that what's going on here when you compare these two small portions of Scripture? What do you think is going on? It's something to ponder. Um, let's finish with Roger Fenton's story. Um, let's finish on him with this strange tale. Fenton was preparing a funeral sermon for a friend whom he believed was about to die. Okay, so this guy hadn't died yet, but he believed it was coming. However, as it turned out, dear old Roger popped his clogs first, and it was the friend who preached old mate Roger's sermon instead. Fenton died in 1616, five years after the publication of the King James Version. And we will continue with this episode right after this personal interlude. So you may have noticed it's been a couple of months since I published an episode of the series. Um, I've been thinking about this a bit. Generally speaking, there are three things that have happened over the last six months that have slowed my output as a podcaster. Um, first of all, I was very, very sick. Then I was very, very well. And I know it sounds funny but when it's put like that, but that's what happened. Um, and that happened to me more than once. So I was like on a roller coaster, swinging from being severely ill, where I couldn't do much, to being so well that I just wanted to live and do things other than podcasting while I could. I know that sounds strange, but that's part of the, what was going on for me, you know. And um, and I recently listened to the last episode, and I I knew I couldn't produce another until I was well enough to do so. Um, in my opinion, it was probably my weakest episode so far, and um. Even the edit was rough. I listened back and the edit just wasn't there and it just wasn't a good episode. And I think I said during that episode that it was produced over a number of different sessions and mostly while I was sick. Uh, so I can perhaps forgive myself for that, but I just wasn't going to put another episode out until I was uh, well enough to do so. Now, the third reason that it's been so long since I've published an episode is because of my non-podcasting life having become so busy, but in a good way. Um, I haven't really been inclined to take the time to put something together. Uh, it's summer here, and it's, can I just say, it's a super hot summer, one of our hottest ever. Um, uh, we Today, as I'm recording this in February, it's uh, where I live, it's been well over 100 degrees Fahrenheit in the old scale, well over 40 in Celsius, so... She's been pretty warm and, uh, you know, it being summer here in Australia, we've been seeing a lot of our friends and family and some we haven't seen in years and catching up with a lot of people. 
and um, and we've had the time to um, go away on a couple of holidays and doing lots and lots of those good things that are good in life. Um, and it sort of made me less inclined to produce a podcast. Now, having said that, the only thing podcasting related that I've done of late was being a guest on the awesome show, The Mind Renewed. Uh, that's themindrenewed.com. Go over to my mate Julian Charles's website, themindrenewed.com. Go look for episode 162, episode 162, which has the title, The Fireside Nephilim Boys Reloaded. Um, myself, along with my esteemed friends on that show, come together sometimes as a bit of a think tank to discuss matters that are serious and not so serious. And on that episode, you can hear a little bit about my adventures in Tasmania, uh, where I use a discussion about the thylacine to make my point as a part of the program. I won't say any more than that, but if you want a bit of a giggle while you have your grey matter challenged, take a little listen to that program, uh, episode 162 of themindrenewed.com. While you're over there, say good day to my good mate, Julian Charles. Now, back to why this episode has been so long in coming. Let's wrap it up. Uh, let's look at it like this. It's been sickness, it's been wellness, and it's been the good life. And let me say this, that life is a funny thing sometimes, and it really is a fragile thing. Um, like many of us, I've lost friends and family. And, you know, there was a time when I was younger, I remember thinking about this and actually talking about it to my friends saying, you know, hey, I don't know anyone personally on a personal level who has died. Well, the more mature members of my audience, and I mean mature in years there, <laughs> not mature in other ways, because it doesn't matter how old you are, sometimes you don't mature. But the more mature members of my audience will know the older you get, the more friends and family you lose. And um, it's just a fact of life. Um, the King James Bible in the book of James, chapter 4, verse 14 says, Whereas ye know not what shall be on the morrow, for what is your life? It is even a vapour that appeareth for a little time and then vanisheth away. Now, I don't want to sound morbid here, or I don't want to marsh on anyone's mellow by a long shot. That's not what I want to do. But this last six months of my life has added another layer to my wonderment at this thing called life. And I mean that in both the negative and positive sense. You know, I look at it and wonder in negatively and positively. And I'm just sharing this with you that in my humble opinion, whether you're ill, whether you're well, whether you're rich, whether you're poor or whatever contrasting concepts that I can think of, you know, as I'm putting this together, no matter what happens in life, I think we need to learn from it. I think we need to roll with it. And I'm speaking to believers specifically here. If you're a believer, you need to be looking for God in it. In my opinion, you can't miss finding God in your life, whether things are happening that are good, whether they're bad, no matter what you will find God in it. And if you're having trouble finding God in it, and I'm not being a smarty here because as a wise man once said, no one really likes a smarty, but I'm not being a smarty. But if you can't find God, search for him in his word. And I'm sure most of you will be aware by now that's part of the reason for this series. You know, uh, I'm doing this for myself, for you. Uh, to dem and I want to demonstrate the wonderment that is God's word. And I really want to help some of you who maybe don't understand the effort that the king's men went to to bring us his word in English. Now, that's not to say it was the first Bible in English, as many of you are aware. Um, 
actually, to be honest, I better stop rambling here before I go over old ground and I start to repeat myself and maybe say stuff that I'm going to get nasty emails about. But um, I am sometimes want to repeat myself. So let, we better get back on with this. Let's get back to our translators. If you want to write to me, by the way, you can email me gk at lightflintradio.com. Appreciate hearing from you. Thank you to those who have written to me. Thank you for, to those who have shared the show. Uh, thank you for you that have le- left a, a rating and a comment on iTunes. I truly appreciate you taking the time. It's such a blessing. What a mitzvah. Let's get back to um, episode 19. And our next translator is going to be Thomas Sanderson. Thomas Sanderson was rector of All Hallows the Great London. To me, that sounds like something out of a movie, doesn't it? Rector of All Hallows the Great. Now, remember, a rector was a type of priest who directly received both the greater and lesser tithes of his parish, while a vicar received only the lesser tithes. Um, He was also an archdeacon of Rochester, uh, and... If you remember, an archdeacon serves the church within a diocese by taking particular responsibility for things like the buildings, um, you know, the church buildings and whatever uh, else that church belongs to the church in that diocese. But he's also responsible for the welfare of the clergy and their families and the implementation of policy within the diocese for the sake of the gospel within a given archdeaconry. So uh, that's basically what an archdeacon was. So Thomas Sanderson at different points in his life uh, was each of these. Um, In 1611, the year of the publication of the King James Bible, he became a canon of St. Paul's. Uh, Not a lot about him there. Uh, Also less about this next member of the panel, Michael Rabbit, that's R-A-B-B-E-T, not Rabbit as in the bunny. Michael Rabbit was another member of the panel who during his life had been a vicar and a university proctor. Moving on to Ralph Hutchinson, our second to last member of this panel was Ralph Hutchinson, who sadly died during the task of translating for the king. He had been a Doctor of Divinity and President of St. John's College. He held a number of vicarage positions and had been a prebend of St. Paul's. He died in 1606 before the translation was finalised, but his contributions to it continued beyond his death since it seems the review board uh, used some of his notes when they met in 1610. That's a subject we're going to cover in an upcoming episode, this uh, review board. Now, the last member of the second Westminster Company panel was William Dakins. Uh, William Dakins also died before the work was published. Um, It's believed he was the son of a vicar. He went to Westminster School and then on to Trinity College at Cambridge. In 1602, he was made a lecturer in Greek at Trinity. And in 1603, a vicar of Trumpington. In 1604, King James himself recommended him as a Professor of Divinity at Grisham College, London. In his letter of recommendation, James referred to Dakins as an ancient divine, despite the fact that he was not even 35 years old. So obviously James liked this bloke. In any case, McClure says this description was more about his character than his age, and Opfeld goes on to say something to the order of his being a harmless academic as compared to others. Anyway, uh, he later became a junior dean at Trinity College and was in that position for two years before he died in 1607. 
He is another who was noted and promoted for his skills in the original languages of the Bible and rightly took his place on this panel. Now, before we finish up here, let's go over to McClure for a few words uh, that will help us wrap this topic up. Uh, So this is from McClure's work from 1853. Thus, we close the best record which, with very great care and research, we have been able to make of this role of ancient scholars. The united labours bestowed upon the common English version of the Bible have produced a volume which has exerted a greater and happier influence on the world than any other which has appeared since the original scriptures themselves were given to mankind. That's a very big compliment for the King James Version and its translators if you think about it like that. Um, Several other persons were employed in various stages of the work. In a letter from the King to the Bishop of London dated July 22, 1604, The monarch says, We have appointed certain learned men to the number of four and fifty for the translating of the Bible. As the authentic list contains but forty-seven names, it is presumed the others were certain divines referred to in the fifteenth article of the royal instructions as to the mode of prosecuting the work. So you remember they were given um, fifteen articles that they had to stick by uh, during the translation. In this 15th article, it is provided that besides the several directors or presidents of the different companies, three or four of the most ancient and grave divines in either of the universities, not employed in translating, be assigned by the vice-chancellor upon conference with the rest of the heads to be overseers of the translation, as well Hebrew as Greek, for the better observance of the fourth rule. That rule required that among the different meanings of any word that one should be adopted which is most sanctioned by the fathers and is most agreeable to the propriety of the place and the analogy of the faith. It is not known who those supervisors were, but if one of the universities designated three of them and the other designated four, it would make out the requisite number. Okay, so if you follow that, King James wrote and said that we've appointed 54 men and um, McClure has in his list 47. But as you hear, um, he just pointed out there that if three of these extra, let's just call them extra supervisors for the sake of our discussion here uh, over the top of the other guys. If there was three from one university and four from the other, that would make 54 as he has quoted James as saying. Alrighty, we'll leave it there for now. We'll be back to talk about the review panel and others who played a part in the final stages of this work because there were more involved than just the review panel itself. So that's something to look forward to. Uh, If you want to write to me, you can write to me, gk, at likeflintradio.com. So until next time, take care, God bless, and hooroo.